Father, may that be true. May we not just sing words from our lips, but may we sing words, deep, meaningful words, true words from our hearts. Because of who Christ is and what Christ has done, we know that it is well. I pray now, Lord, as we open your word together, that you would remind us, you would refresh our understanding that regardless of what we see in our world, regardless of what we feel in our own lives, that you've got this and you have the end that's written from the beginning. So may we trust you. May you love your people well now through me as I speak your truth to them. Give us hearts to love Jesus, eyes to see Jesus, ears to hear Jesus, knees to bow before Jesus, and hands and feet to serve Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. I encourage you to open your copies of the Scriptures this morning, please, to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find a Bible near you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you. Or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, you'll find that hymnal rack beneath you. And the church Bible there, you'll want to go to page 1010. Page 1010. I do want to say a special welcome to all of you guests who are with us this morning. Many of you are here because of your children being in vacation Bible school this past week. Let me just say thank you for the privilege that you have given us as a church of ministering to your children. It is a privilege. It is an honor. We don't take that for granted. Thank you for entrusting them to us. And let me just say, your kids are wow, because I am more tired this morning than I've been in a whole long time. And so I just want you to know I've, I've pretty much lived on caffeine this week. Um, even this morning, uh, I asked Joanna, my wife, to I sent her an SOS text after I got here to the church about 7 o'clock this morning and said, please, on your way in, stop by McDonald's and I need an iced coffee. And so uh, more than I ever have since college this week, I have lived, I am shaking up here, okay. Um, and so, uh, it, but thank you. We love your children. And I had the privilege this week of teaching the Bible lesson each and every day to each and every one of your children, all four age groups, which was quite a task when you begin with the four and five-year-olds, and then the next group that's up is the fifth and sixth graders. So that's quite the, but man, they kept me on my toes. We had a great time together learning God's Word together. And if you're a guest with us this morning, let me just try to bring you up to speed as quickly as I can in what we've been studying as a church on Sunday mornings, and that is Mark's gospel, the gospel of Mark, the second book of the New Testament, where Mark is really unpacking for us the life and the ministry of Jesus. And we've entitled this study in Mark's gospel, Life on Purpose, because that describes the life that Jesus lives when he comes to earth, when he lives the perfect life for us, to die the death that's necessary for us. So this is all on purpose. 
Jesus comes with the purpose of going to the cross and dying on the cross for our sins so that for all who place their faith and trust in him, we are given eternal life and we are given a purpose in life. And that is to love and to trust and to follow Jesus. So life on purpose doesn't just describe Jesus' life. Now it describes our life as followers of Jesus. And we're picking up the text now. We've made our way through the first 12 chapters of Mark's gospel And now we come this morning to chapter 13. And here, the cross is taking center stage for Jesus. Three days away from the cross, he is leaving the temple. Let's just pick up the text in verse 1 of Mark chapter 13. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher. What wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Because many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of our God. These are the words of Jesus to us this morning. This is what we know as the Olivet Discourse. But before we dive into it, let me just say, I do love children. And... um, those of you who don't know, we have five children of our own. Joanna and I do. I love being a dad. I love being a granddad now to our little grandson, Wesley. If you were to read my bio on our church website, you would read that I especially love the funny things that children say and do. In fact, about eight years ago, when our youngest daughters, Mary and Amy, were seven and five, They were engaged in a conversation over lunch one day that went like this. Um, Little Amy, she's the youngest, she spoke up and she said, Mary, I know everything. (laughs) Mary, being two years older, just couldn't let that lie. And so she said, okay, Amy, what's 2,000 plus 2,000? And Amy said, I know everything. (laughs) And if that wasn't comical enough, Mary then said, Amy, you don't know what 2,000 plus 2,000 is, but I do. It's (laughs) 3,000. 
And that's when I entered into the conversation to correct both of them by reminding both of them that none of us knows everything, but God does. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal for everyone in this room this morning, especially every parent and every grandparent in this room, because as our own children grow older, one of my big concerns as a dad is, what's this world going to look like when my children are my age? What kind of world are my grandkids going to grow up in? And I think there are probably parents and grandparents in this room who are asking those same questions. And let's just be honest this morning, we tend to fear the future. We tend to become anxious about what's coming. But the good news is that God's got everything that's coming. Everything. And that's precisely what Jesus is teaching his disciples right here in Mark chapter 13. It is Tuesday of Passion Week, and Jesus knows that when he dies on Friday, his disciples won't just be confused. They'll be terrified and horrified about what's coming next. And so when one of the disciples makes a passing comment on how cool and awesome the temple structure is there in Jerusalem, Jesus seizes the opportunity to teach them and us some big-time truth about the future. And so the big idea of this scene in Mark 13 is that the one who holds the future is holding you. If you're a child of God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone, then the God who's got the future has got you forever. And we know that because the Bible spends a lot of time talking about forever. It talks about the end of all things. It addresses the apocalypse. When, when God will pull back the curtain on the eternity He has planned for us, it's what we refer to as the doctrine of eschatology. If you don't know what that means or what that is, it's no big deal. It just means that the doctrine of, it's the doctrine of last things. It's, it's the, important, the important truth about what is coming in eternity. And the important truth about the doctrine of last things is that it's not theoretical. It's practical. There's a real-world reason that Jesus is going to clue us in on some of what the future holds. It's because Jesus doesn't want us to worry. It's because Jesus doesn't want us to fear. He wants us to know that the future is fixed. It is certain. He wants us to know that the future isn't just some open-ended set of infinite possibilities that he's trying to get a hold of. No, he wants us to know that God is moving this world, even right here, right now, this morning. God is in process of moving this world toward the end that he's already written, toward the destiny he's already determined, all the way into the foreverness of eternity. Now, obviously, eternity is an infinite subject and that's one reason this is an introductory sermon this morning. It's a first look at Mark chapter 13. We're only going to cover two verses this morning, just two, because this is a tough chapter, and it really needs a lengthy setup here. 
It's a tough chapter because some of what Jesus says here in this chapter has to do with events that are now for us, they're already past, like the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so some of what Jesus says here applies to what the disciples will experience in their lifetimes, and then some of what Jesus says here applies to what we will experience in our lifetimes, like verse 8 where Jesus says that nation will rise against nation, that there will be wars and rumors of wars. We don't need to be reminded of what's going on in Ukraine right now. And then there's verse 9, where Jesus says that His followers will face persecution. And while we may not see much of that right here, right now in America, it is happening right now in Iraq and Afghanistan and Turkey and northern Africa. So some of what Jesus says here is past history. Some of what Jesus says here is present history. And then some of what Jesus says here is future history. Some of what Jesus prophesies here, the disciples won't see fulfilled. Some of what Jesus says here, we won't see fulfilled. But everything Jesus promises here one day will be fulfilled. Like what he says down in verses 24 through 27, where he says that the sun and the moon will be darkened and the stars will fall from heaven and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will come in clouds with great power and glory. That day isn't just coming someday. That day is right now, right here in process of coming right today. And that's why when we approach this text, we've really got to have a category for what has happened, and then another category for what is happening, and then a final category for what will happen, because that's the way that Jesus is teaching it. He's saying, guys, I'm going to talk prophecy with you, end-time prophecy with you. And for you to really get what I'm saying, you've got to pick up on the big, this big, this big truth right up front. What's going to happen to the temple in your day is a picture of what's going to happen to the entire earth someday. In the same, in the same way that D-Day is coming for the temple real soon, D-Day is coming for the earth someday, and on that day, God will take that total destruction and He'll turn that total destruction into new construction, an eternal home and an eternal glory for His people in a brand new heavens and a brand new earth. It's coming. That's what the future holds for us as followers of Jesus. There is coming a day when every sad thing will come untrue. There is coming a day when sorrow and sin are forever undone and every wrong made right eternally. There is coming a day when Parkinson's and MS and cancer are forever forgotten. Friends, there is coming a day. It's Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Or the Apostle John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne in heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away forever.
That's our destiny. That's our future. Even when it feels like our world is coming undone, even when it looks like it's spinning out of control, and that's precisely how Jesus' disciples are going to be feeling when he drops a bomb on them after he leaves the temple with them. He's leading them through the streets of Jerusalem there. He's leading them down into the Kidron Valley and then up the Mount of Olives. They're heading back to the village of Bethany to spend the night, but as they're cresting that Mount of Olives, the disciples stop, and they turn around, and they face the west, and they take in the bird's-eye view of the city of Jerusalem. It's a million-dollar view because the gold that lines the temple structure is shimmering in the late evening sun as they look west over the city. And as the disciples are standing there drinking in that view, one of them says, Jesus, look, you see that? The temple in all of its glory. Jesus, isn't it just wow? I mean, Jesus, HGTV should be all over this. Just look at the wonderful stones and the wonderful buildings. Now, initially, we may think that This is a bit of an overreaction from the disciples that they're just a bunch of hicks from the sticks up in Galilee who've never been to the big city before. But remember, for the Jew, coming to Jerusalem at Passover was an annual event. These guys haven't just been here before. They've seen it all before. But they're taken with it all like never before because actually the temple has been undergoing a major renovation job for nearly 50 years. Herod the Great is overseeing the project. It's going to be his legacy, his one shining moment. He's going all out. He's sparing no expense. He's expanded the temple footprint to cover 35 acres. That's 26 football fields. That's one-sixth of the entire city of Jerusalem. One corner of that temple's patio would require a retaining wall 15 stories high, enabling it to hang out over the Kidron Valley. Some of the stones on that patio are the size of a school bus. Some of the brass gates there are 135 feet tall. But what catches the disciples' attention is that much of the temple structure is lined with gold. So much gold that modern scholars have estimated its present-day value at over $1 trillion. It's Israel's national identity. It's the epicenter of Jewish life, the place where you go to experience God and encounter God. To the disciples, it's so eye-poppingly beautiful, but to Jesus... It's nothing more than a shell of religiosity. It's a glorified tourist trap that's full of empty, going-through-the-motions worship where religious leaders are fleecing God's people and blaspheming God's name. Go back and read Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 12 where Jesus comes right out and says flat out, I hate this with a passion. What the temple has become. Which is why he says to his guys, do you see these buildings? 
Well, it's a rhetorical question, right? Because, of course, these guys see the buildings. They're the ones who pointed them out to Jesus. So Jesus is going to employ a bit of irony and sarcasm here. Guys, you see these great buildings. They aren't going to be great much longer. They're coming down. And when they come down, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Beauty will turn to ashes, stones to dust. Nothing will be left, guys, nothing at all. Tragedy is coming to the temple. That's Jesus' prophecy. prophecy. That's Jesus' prediction. That's Jesus' promise. And the disciples have to be blown away because they expected Jesus to actually commandeer the temple, to set up his kingdom and his throne there in the temple, and to reign not just over Israel but over the entire world. They're expecting the pomp and circumstance of kingdoms and thrones and crowns, even though Jesus has told them that he isn't coming to rule from the temple. He's coming to replace the temple by embodying what is symbolized by the temple. You see, to the Jew, the temple symbolized God's power and God's presence. And that's why you came as a Jew to the temple to offer animal sacrifice. It's there that you encountered the power of God's presence and forgiveness. But that wasn't the big point of the temple. The big point of the temple is to point to Jesus. He is God's power. He is God's presence because he is God in the flesh. And so Jesus can do what the temple sacrifices could never do. He can reconcile us to God by paying the price for our sins in full and forever. And that's why at the very moment that Jesus dies, that curtain in the temple, will be torn into from top to bottom, proving and symbolizing that the only way into the eternal presence of God isn't through a building, but through a person, and His name is Jesus. And so, when Jesus gives His life up, the temple must come down. That's what Jesus has actually said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. I tell you, he says, something greater than the temple is here. And Jesus is saying, that's me, guys. That's me. So the temple's got to come down because it symbolizes the work of man. And salvation is never the work of man. It's always the work of God. And that's why I've come down from heaven to do the work of God in saving my people from their sins. It's got to be my work and not your work. It's got to be a person and not a place. It's got to be me and not the temple. You see, everyone in this world, if they were honest with themselves, everyone in this world is trusting in someone or something for salvation. The question is, what is that? Who's your someone? Who's your something? Jesus comes to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to be for us who we could never be ourselves, to give for us what we could never give ourselves. See, so many people today believe 
that eternal salvation is earned by what we do. And if we do enough, and we are enough, and we give enough, then we can work our way to God. That's not God, good news. Because how will we ever know that we've done enough, or been enough, or given enough? The good news isn't that we work our way to God. The good news is that God has come to us in Jesus. And He does for us what we could never do. He is for us who we could never be. He gives for us what we could never give. And that's His life. So many people today, their lives are represented by this temple that's coming crashing down. They're working to win God's favor. But Jesus says, I've come. I've come to do what the temple could never do. Who are you trusting in? What are you trusting in for your eternal salvation? You see, the Bible says in Titus 3, verse 5, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but it's only according to his mercy that he saves us. And that's why Jesus comes. He comes to die on the cross, having lived the perfect life for us, so that he could die the death we deserve. And here's what 1 Peter 3, verse 18 says, Christ came to us. He came for us. He suffered once for sins. The righteous in the place of the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God. We can't come to God on our own. We can't do enough. We can only come to God in and through Jesus. And that's why Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 say, you have been saved by grace. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of works. It is a gift from God, lest any of us should boast. It's not of ourselves. And so the big question this morning is, would you trust Jesus? Would you come to him in faith? Right here, right now, if you've never come to Jesus, would you come to him? Would you trust in him alone to do for you what you could never do? To win eternal salvation through his life and death. Because the Bible says if you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And maybe you're like, but Pastor Ken, can, 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 can I really trust Jesus? Is he, is he really trustworthy? Um, that, that's a great question. In fact, the rest of the sermon is built on that question, so I'm so thankful you asked that question. Is Jesus trustworthy? Did what Jesus said would happen, did it happen to the temple? Forty years later, A.D. 70, what Jesus said would happen did happen. First, the temple is desecrated by the Romans in the precise way that Jesus talks about down in verse 14. Now, we didn't read that this morning. You can read that on your own. But they desecrate the temple. And then the temple is decimated by the Romans, just as Jesus says in verse 2. And what's crazy about this is we don't read about this in the Bible. We read about it in secular history books. When a first century Jewish historian named Josephus, a guy who actually did not believe in Jesus as Messiah, gives us a play-by-play of how it all goes down in Jerusalem. He writes, on August 30 in the year 70, 
Jerusalem fell and the temple was entered. The future Caesar, Titus, led in his generals and pulled aside the curtain before the Holy of Holies, and to his dismay, it was empty. The Ark of the Covenant had disappeared at the time of the exile to Babylon 500 years earlier until it was refound by Indiana Jones. Okay, I'm making that up, okay? I'm just seeing if you're still with me here, but... uh, So the Holy of Holies is empty. Titus doesn't know what to do with an empty Holy of Holies. And so his army enters the Holy of Holies, and on the altar there, they offer animal sacrifices to their gods. They desecrate the temple. And then there in the Holy of Holies of the temple, they hail Titus as the true Savior of the world. Then the soldiers loot the temple. But Titus is so impressed with the building and the structure itself that he gives orders not to destroy it. As the soldiers attempted then to melt the gold off its walls, the temple catches fire and it's gutted. Titus is so upset by what has happened that he orders the whole city, the temple, and everything to be razed to the ground. The soldiers hunting for hidden gold that's still there actually begin prying the stones apart one by one and pushing them to the ground below so that there is nothing left of the temple structure. The destruction was so complete that there was left nothing to make anyone who entered the city believe it had ever been inhabited. It all happened just as Jesus said And it's not the Bible making it up. It's history books testifying to the reality that Jesus called it. You can trust Him. So what does all of this mean for us at street level where we live? How does Jesus' prophecy of a fallen temple affect us 2,000 years later and half a world away? Well, if you were to read through the entire chapter of Mark 13, you would find five ways that Jesus applies this to our lives. You say five ways, uh, five ways, it's already 1135. I'm only going to cover one, just one this morning. It's verses 7 and 11, where Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't be anxious. Don't fear what's coming. So here are three takeaways for us this morning of how we can apply what Jesus says in this text to where we live on our street and in our homes. Three ways that we can fight the temptation to fear the future. Number one, fill your mind with God's truth. Fill your mind with God's truth. I love what Jesus says in John 17, 17. Your word, Father, your word is truth. And we need truth. In our world today. Listen, we need truth. We need God's truth. We need His Word. You know why? Because fear is a liar. Fear is a liar. Fear offers faulty solutions by making empty promises that are based upon false assumptions. Fear is, is fear, fear of the future feeds, think about this, fear of the future feeds on hypotheticals, not realities. It's all about the what-ifs, right? What if my child doesn't get that scholarship? What if I don't get that raise? What if our offer on that home isn't accepted? What if 
the biopsy comes back with bad news. What if? And the way we fight the fear of what might happen is with the truth of what will happen. That's precisely what Jesus is doing here with his disciples. He's speaking truth to them, reminding them that in the midst of the uncertainties they are going to face, God is giving them certainties to hang on to from his word. Certainties like Isaiah 26, 3 and 4, God, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. He's the unshakable, unbreakable, unstoppable God. And when you fill your mind with that truth, then secondly, you'll be able to find your rest in God's sovereignty. That God's got everything under control. Everything. Just this past week, God like reminded our family of this in a very special and unique way. And I want to share it with you this morning because three years ago, my wife Joanna was a kindergarten teacher right here at Schaumburg Christian School. And in her class was an autistic boy. Um, and it was rough both for him and for Joanna in teaching him and I remember there were days that Joanna would come home just totally wiped out and exhausted. And she wasn't sure whether or not he could remain in the class. But she didn't quit. And he didn't quit. And just this past week, that boy came to vacation Bible school. He's not here at Schaumburg Christian anymore. But on Monday, the first day of Vacation Bible School, his mom made a point to find Joanna. And she said something like this. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for loving my son. God used what you did three years ago. And just a few weeks ago, I became a believer in Jesus. Wow. She said, I knew who Jesus was then, but I know Jesus now. Yeah. And this morning, they're not here in this service because in another local church up in Barrington, that mom is going public with her faith in Jesus through baptism. Listen, God's got the tough times. God's working in and through the tough times. You can rest in the fact that he is in control of the tough times, total control over all events, with all people, in all places, at all times. And that's why it's significant that Jesus here in Mark 13 covers past and present and future events. God is in complete control of past and present and future events. 
It's Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, where God says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so God controls the times and the seasons of everything in the universe. But that's not all. He controls the times and the seasons of my life and my children's lives and my grandchildren's lives. My past serves a real purpose. My present is no accident. And my future is eternally secure because God is in control. And so as Psalm 31 verse 15 says, my times are in your hands. Rest in the truth of God's sovereignty. And then thirdly, you can hang your hope on God's promises. You can hang your hope on God's promises. You see, your hope isn't in your ability to successfully maneuver the twists and turns of what's coming. Your hope is in the God who is moving all of history toward its predetermined conclusion. So when nation rises against nation and kingdom against kingdom and brother against brother, remember that God has already written the final chapter. He doesn't leave us to grope for hope in the darkness of what we can see or how we feel. He calls us to live in the light of who He is. So when we feel ourselves losing our grip, we find our hope in the one who's got us in his grip. The one who says in Isaiah 41 verse 10, fear not, for right here, right now, I am with you. Be not dismayed, because right here, right now, I am your God. And so I will strengthen you tomorrow. I will help you tomorrow. And I will uphold you tomorrow with my righteous right hand. If you are a child of God, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone, then that's true for you. Every moment of every day into the forever of eternity. Fill your mind with that truth. Find your rest in God's sovereignty. Hang your hope on his promises. The one who holds the future really is the one holding you. And he's already penned your final chapter in Revelation 22, verses 4 and 5, where he says, we will see his face. And his name will be on our foreheads, and night will be no more. We will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be our light, and we will reign with him forever and ever. Amen. Father. Convince us afresh and anew of this great truth that you are the one who holds the future, the very same one who's holding us. For those who don't know Jesus, may you open their hearts and their eyes to Jesus, and may they come to Jesus. And for those who do know Jesus, may we, may we trust you. May we believe you even with the future that we cannot see. Because it's the future that you do know. In Jesus' name, amen.